0: Matt Spiegel and Bruce Levine right here. Let's go out to the Aurelio's Pizza Hotline. It is the sauce.
1: And we bring in the legendary manager of Major League Baseball, longtime friend of mine for, I don't know, 35 years, and uh, just a great baseball guy. Now consulting for the Detroit Tigers and Major League Baseball, my friend and yours, Jim Leland joins us. Good morning, uh, Good morning, Jim. How are you?
2: All well, right, guys fine happy holidays same today. to
1: you, same to you hey Jim uh l- let's start off with some uh conversation about um of Harold Baines, a guy that you were uh privileged to uh coach with the Chicago White sox back from nineteen eighty two through eighty five and your your recollections of uh Harold as a player, you know we've heard all this uh, talk you know about he should be he shouldn't be well, uh all you had to do is watch him long enough to know what a great player he was.
2: Yeah, he was a great player, great guy, and very low-key guy. He didn't get much fanfare because he was a very quiet guy, just went about his business, came to the clubhouse every day the same, never changed. You you wouldn't know, he was one of those guys, you wouldn't know whether he went 4 for 4 or 0 for 4 He got big hit after big hit, particularly late in the game, put up great numbers, had a a huge number of hits, I think not too far shy of 3,000. You know, just a great player, and really uh, uh, will be a great addition to the Hall of Fame.
1: People forget, and you were you were able to watch him, like I was, play defense before his knees started to go south on him. Describe the type of all around player he was at that time.
2: Well, he was a very good, consistent outfielder with a very good arm. Uh, his running speed was never great; it was it was okay. He was an average runner. Uh, he wasn't a burner by any means, but he had a very good arm. He was a very instinctive outfielder, and he was really a great all-around player. There's no question about that. And, of course, as you said, when the knee's went, then he, he turned to the DH. But, you know, a lot of people forget the DH is a position now in baseball, whether people right. want to admit it or not. It, it is a position. So I think that, you know, that's irrelevant. I don't think that matters anymore.
0: Hey, Jim, when you were managing at that time, what was the involvement of the front office in terms of, bringing you anything, like uh, stats or telling you, hey, we think this guy might be better at this or better at that. How involved was the front office at that time?
2: Well, we always had information. I mean, you always had information. There's just more of it now. I think it gets blown out of proportion. I think everybody's trying to help. They're they're supplying the manager with a bunch of information, and the manager uh, uses it as he sees fit. I mean, I had all those numbers for years. Uh, You know, it's a little quicker, a little easier to get it now because we're in the computer age. There's no question about that. I think there are some new things that, you know, it's probably become a little more sophisticated than it was. But we're we're really no strangers to that information. I mean, Earl Weaver used to use a pad and pencil to mark things down. And then they, you know, then the computer age came in and you get all these statistical stuff. And it's just a matter of how you use it.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tony, when you were coaching uh, here he had uh, Danny Evans uh, supplying him with that kind of information way back in the early 80s when you guys were uh, running that team. And uh, I'm sure you took some of that with you to Pittsburgh when you started.
2: I did. And, you know, I think it's amazing the way everybody's talking about now about general managers making lineups. Now, I don't really believe that. I think, you know, when I managed the Detroit Tigers, Florida, I, I had lunch with Dave Dombrowski at home for for sure. At home, we would come down every every noon. And, and we would talk about the lineup. He, I mean, he never told me I had to play this guy or had to play that guy, but I would ask his input. I would ask the assistant general manager. I would talk to the coaches about it. So, you know, it, it would be like people had ideas, and, and, you know, there might be a tough call. Who do I play tonight? This guy, that guy, platoon, this guy, or that guy. I mean, there was always discussions about that. I don't think managers were ever – you know, worried about somebody. You know, telling who to play or anything. I don't think it worked like that. I don't think it works like that today. I think they supply information, they discuss it, and then they make their best. So the manager makes his best decisions. But so, that's that's
0: the way it's supposed. It's sure. the way it's supposed to work. And I, I have you have you heard from anyone, uh, any of your people within the game that it it ever pushes a little bit too far to that way where the manager is kind of reduced in power and role.
2: I don't. I don't really think as much as people are letting on. I think that they, you know, I do think that they look at these lineups. and I think there's somebody upstairs that looks at these lineups with all the information and maybe makes a suggestion. And the manager might look at it. He may decide to go with it. He may not. But at the end of the day, I believe and I truly believe that yet today the managers are making the decisions on the lineup.
1: Jim, you work with the Major League Baseball, and I'm sure part of the discussions with Joe Torrey and the group there many times is. What do we do about these defensive shifts, and uh, how do we legislate without uh, putting ourselves in a position where we're telling people uh, that they can't be uh, creative enough to shift the guy here or there or move him here or there? It seems to be the great debate right now whether there should be infielders playing short right field or short left field uh, to be able to cut down runners.
2: I particularly don't like the shift at all, to be honest with you. Uh, I also think it's overrated. I know there are some numbers that that tell that it works, but they never tell when it doesn't work. And I think that there's also situations where the guy's in short right field and the guy hits a one-hop to him, and they say, well, he hit right into the shift. Well, technically he hit, he hit right where the second baseman would have been if he'd have been on the infield if he was playing dead pool. Right. So I think it's overrated. I think it's definitely overrated, but I think there is something to it. I'm not saying it doesn't help in some cases. But I also saw several games last year where because of the shift, Teams because the way they were positioned could not get to a, to the base, the second base, to make a double play. Right, and they did not make the double play. So I like two guys on on on, on both sides of the second base. That's what I like. I think it makes it a better game. Uh, I'm not being old fashioned. I just and I understand the argument. Well, you know, if you want to put a defense, you ought to be able to put the one that you think gives you the best chance to win the game. I just don't think it's good for our game. I think we need less strategy in our game right now and more action.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I I couldn't agree with you more on that, Jim. The idea, Matt, that uh, we see games, you know, 34% of the time from the uh, sixth inning on ending in a strikeout walk or home run, Jim. That, uh, that means that a lot of people are just sitting on their hands, uh, twiddling their thumbs, wondering what they're missing outside of the game. And that's not what you want for baseball, is it?
2: Mm-hmm. No, it's not what you want, and I think you know we we've we've lost a little bit of our our young fan base, which we're trying to get back, mm-hmm. and let's face it, young people like action, they don't want to sit there, they want something going on, and I understand that I think the, the you know the visitors to the mound helped a little bit last year. I think we could still do some other things to pick up the pace, but I, I think that's very important because young people want action and they don't want to sit there with nothing going on. so that's something that the commissioner I think is doing a great job. Of, of understanding and, and, and thinking about, you know, what avenues to take. Uh, you know, he's doing a good job in looking to the future, to, you know, to keep our game going, keep it on pace. Uh, with all the other games and everything, and I think that uh, you know, I think he's done a good job at it.
0: Yeah, you know, it's possible to look at all the advancements in logic and strategy and realize that the most efficient way to manage and maybe play the game is not the most entertaining way to have the game be watched. It's just it's so. So, what else? What else might the commissioner do? I, I've heard about this: the two guys on either side of second base. Are we talking about limiting pitching changes during the course of a game? Is that potentially possible too?
2: Well, they're talking about that. I don't particularly like that. I think that's one area where the manager does, uh, you know, does make decisions that if, if he does a good job and his strategy should be rewarded, I think that's a little bit different than the shift. So I hope that they don't do that. Uh, you know, but I think there are some things. I think, like the pace of the game, I think and this will be a you know, the Players Association probably won't like it, but I think they ought to play the walk up music. For their first at bat, and then not played anymore. Because it's not the pitchers that are slowing the game down with the action, it's the hitters. They're standing over there in the on deck circle and they wait till their name is announced, they so wait till they're playing their music, they're fooling around with their batting gloves. It's really not the pitcher that's holding it up in most cases, it's the, it's the hitters.
1: Jim Leland uh, joining us on Inside the Clubhouse for a few more minutes. He's mad. I'm Bruce. We're here for you every week, 52 weeks out of the year, talking baseball from 9 to 11. Jim, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of controversy these days about uh, Barry Bonds and uh, whether or not he should be in the Hall of Fame or not. Um, certainly, I had the, had the privilege of watching his entire career. You were there from the beginning of his career until 1992, or through 1992 and watched a great player. What are your thoughts about him as a player and, uh, you know, the controversy about people trying to decide whether he belongs or not?
3: Well, I think
2: it's, there's no question. He's a hall of famer. I don't, I don't, I don't think that anybody's going to dispute that. This guy's one of the greatest players to ever play. In fact, some people can make a case that he's the best player to ever play. He walked more than Babe Ruth. I mean, what is, yep. and so I, I think you, you know, a lot of people could make a case for that. So, I think it's just a matter of the voters and how they feel. I see that his percentage started to go up along with Roger Clements. And I I just don't, you know, whatever they want to do with that situation, I I understand that. But if if you're just talking about uh, Roger Clements and Barry Bonds Hall of Famers, there's absolutely no question about that.
0: My perception has always been that Barry Bonds was a Hall of Famer (laughs) before the opportunity uh, and the usage of anything was even was even in place. You know, it, it, you, you could you could draw a line, but it's difficult for us or for me to decide where that started. Uh, but but well, you know what I'm saying?
2: Oh. Yeah. But plus, I mean, th- he's never been found guilty of using anything. People people forget that. I mean, they, yeah. they've never really proved anything. So, you know, you can't just you know you can't just make assumptions. You can think whatever you want. I'm not going to get into a discussion about it because I don't know. But at the same time, I mean, this guy's a Hall of Famer. There's no question.
1: We, uh, You know, uh, Pete Rose's name comes up always, and I know he was a good friend of yours. And uh, personally, as a player and as a competitor, I watched Pete Rose uh, interviewing him. There was no one better. Uh, the guy played great. He was a winner, uh, everything else. And I know a contemporary years as a manager, what, what's your perception of uh, of Pete and uh, you know the the idea that the Hall of Fame is a museum and a and a sacred place compared to uh should a guy like that just be represented because he was the guy that had the most hits and was a winner throughout his uh, career
2: well I just I, I'll tell you this I, I don't think Pete Rose is gonna get in I think that's a whole different scenario whether people want to believe that or not uh, I, I'm just talking the way that the drift that I get from people, the Hall of Famers that are in, and some baseball people, that's a whole different scenario. Right? Uh, should he be in the Hall of Fame because of what he accomplished on the field? There's no question about that. because, But because of what he did, which was a total obviously no-no in, in, in baseball eyes, I do not think that, that he's going to get voted in. I'm not saying he should or should, but I'm saying I don't think he's going to get voted right. in.
1: I always make the point that uh, at any time Pete could have called you or Don Zimmer, and while you were managing and say, Hey, what's going on? I mean you had great relationships. He could have asked about a relief pitcher, you know, he could have used that and th- that was the insidious thing that uh that people worry about most is uh, you know, whether that well, was that, inside I can information. That never happened. <laughs> well I mean I I, I I know I know knowingly it wouldn't happen, but you know, nobody nobody enjoyed talking the game more than Pete Rose and there right. were I mean he had You had to say he was one of the more charming guys when he was on, right?
2: No, there's no question about it. I mean, this guy was Mr. Baseball. I mean, he was everything you talk about baseball. Hustle, played hard, you know, kind of an underdog guy when he started his career. He wasn't really the burner runner. He was a good runner, but not really a burner. He, you know, not a lot of power, but he fought from both sides of the plate and got more hits than anybody. I mean, this guy, what he accomplished was unbelievable.
0: You know, Jim, when I think about your career as a manager, and God, it was so much fun to watch you as, as a manager, I'm wondering when you look back and you say you, you picture the view from the dugout, like are there a couple games that pop up? I know the games that would pop up for me if I'm asked about your career, you know. but are, are there a couple games that pop up when you think about the most memorable ones you were in the dugout for?
2: Well, there's a few, yeah. The game in Atlanta, the heartbreaking game was won. The World Series game seven obviously is one where we won. And I think one of the biggest games in my career was the Maglio D'Onia's home run in Detroit, where they had been so bad for so long. And Mm. we went there in 2006, and we ended up beating the Oakland Athletics, sweeping them in the American League Championship Series. Maglio hit a walk-off home run to win the pennant. So there's several of them, but you know, some of them been good, some of them been bad, but that's that's part of the game.
0: Yeah, right. I I, I know how important that Maglio home run was to to Tigers fans. It got very very emotional at the time. But interesting, you say the heartbreaker and Francisco Cabrera and Sid Bream first. It's uh it, it's the first one I'll think of too. And it's not. I, I don't know. It, it, is it still a negative after all these years? Or do you just look at it and say, boy, that one sucked. But I had a lot of good ones too.
2: No, I don't I don't really look at it as a negative. I just look at it as part of your career. It's a game of baseball and you know, if you wanna win you gotta get one more run in the other team. We didn't do it. They did, we didn't, and you know, I turned the page almost immediately after it was over. Uh, you'll never turn it totally because you know, people keep reminding you of it from time to time, but that's okay. I mean it it was it was still a good memory, it was a tough loss and a heartbreaking loss, a gut wrenching loss. But it was still a good memory. We were there. It was one of the great games in baseball. And yep. we just happened to be on the short end of it.
1: In closing with you, Jim, uh, managers' salaries seem to be uh, coming the other way. <clears throat> your good friend and one of your contemporaries, uh, the great Tony LaRusa, fought hard for managers and coaches. To start making really good money and he was a champion of that and I think you were kind of like that too during your career making sure people got paid right when you look at uh, managers salaries now being leveled off and people going the opposite way what what are your thoughts about that from the industry
2: I'm shocked I'm shocked to be honest with you uh, you know to their credit you know defensive coordinators making two three million dollars a year and and that's to their credit I know it's a tough job but you know, they play 16 games a year. You know, the NBA, 81 games. Hockey, 81 games. You know, college football, coaches making $5, $7, 8000000 million mm-hmm. a year. And a major league manager managing 162 games plus 35 in spring training and possibly 16 in the postseason, making seven hundred, eight hundred uh, thousand it, dollars $800,000. It just doesn't add up to me. I can't figure it out.
1: And you guys did work hard to make sure that people got paid right. Tony was... Uh, among the the real champions of coaches and managers, wasn't he?
2: Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, you, you know, you, you know, I'm not trying to set the tone for what they pay guys. That's their business. But it's just shocking to me. I don't really understand it. Right. You know, in the sport business, I just don't understand the logic behind it. How a major league manager is paid so little compared to college football coaches and. Uh, and and, you know, and and coaches in the NFL and the NBA. It's hard for me to understand.
1: It's called control in my mind, Jim, but uh, that, I guess that's a discussion, a longer discussion for another day. Jim, thanks uh, so much for taking some time out for Matt and I on Inside the Clubhouse. Have a great New Year. Say Good hi morning. to the family, Katie and the kids, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you and seeing you in spring training.
2: All right, Bruce. Great talking to you. All
1: right, thanks. The legendary Jim Leland on Inside the Clubhouse with his Insights, and uh, he doesn't pull too many punches. Mm-hmm. Might might drink a little bit extra coffee here and there while we're, we're discussing it. But the uh, the idea is that um, Jim has always been a very honest guy, very straightforward guy. And um, when he commits to doing a show or an interview, he's not going to soft sell it. I mean, he works for Major League Baseball. Matt, the idea is that the edict is coming from Major League Baseball to back off on manager salaries and to level them off. They didn't want the $6 million for Sosha for Bochi, for the Madden. The is
0: coming from, from above to it's do coming it? coming from above. I, I thought it was just sort of the trend How of front it? offices Where thinking. Where do trends start? Well, with certain front offices refusing to pay because trends, they think trends, that they can, uh, they can control it more. With,
1: trends start with Major League Baseball. Who runs Major League Baseball? Well, sure. The owners, right? Mm-hmm. There's a commissioner, but and the
0: commissioner is really just an extension of the owners. That's now. right.
1: That's exactly right. So since Bud Selig became the commissioner back in 1992, the perception of commissioner changed to being more of a CEO slash commissioner right. representing the ownership more than players. Players Association has gotten bigger, stronger, and they are the the entity that represents the players so this is a ownership mandate to back off on these salaries
0: wow and you've got you got individual organizations following suit and uh and yeah. and guys being but it, their it, roles it, being less man
1: it's a control issue it's in control like uh we want to control our manager we want to control some of the metrics for him we also want to control uh having a coach on the A metrics coach there. We want him to be pulling a a pitcher in the fourth inning when he's dealing with only Mm -hmm. fifty pitches. This is all about a a different mechanism of running a baseball game from the front office down.
0: But oh, by the way, uh, manager, if things don't go right, we can blame you very very quickly for your lack of atmosphere. Much
1: money, Mm -hmm. you know, it's going to be less because you're now more a middle manager in our organization in our franchise in our big business
0: do you think joe madden survives this entire baseball season
1: tell me what the record is on uh june 1st right
0: i i, I lean towards no on that question right because of all the pressure that has been put on from the top we're going to be, get better uh with it what would, we have it would
1: be a bad day if he was fired not because of uh, losing joe madden who's a terrific individual and a, a great person to talk to but that the idea that the team had uh, failed up to that point. Well,
0: it could just be a little slump, though, too, it, it, depending yeah. on who they have in as a bench well, coach, depending on who they, who they can get. But they, they've put the pressure down. So we're going to get better internally. It's on you guys, and every other coach has been fired and let go. And, and uh, guys who are front office people, not necessarily Joe's people, like Tommy Hodovey, are brought in there as the pitching I, coach.
1: Some way, somehow, even though David Ross has turned down uh, the, the, the bench coach job, yeah. I see him being a more prominent guy with the Cubs this year.
0: Well, certainly by the end of the year. I would agree with that. It's six seventy. The score. I'm Matt Spiegel. He is Bruce Levine. We spent a lot of the first hour talking about highlights, looking back of Cubs season and White Sox season 2018. Let's talk about expectations for 2019 here on the final show of the year, Bruce. We'll see what folks are uh, are, are hoping for and really expecting out of their teams moving forward. Three one two six forty four sixty seven sixty seven. And we've got a Hall of Fame ballot to dissect
1: as well. January twenty second, the Hall of Fame will announce. There are inductees, if there are any, Matt. So we will talk to you about it again. As Matt said, three one two six four four six seven six seven. Text Matt six seventy eleven. Keep
0: it right here on the score. It is six seventy. The score. It's inside the clubhouse, and the phone lines are open at three one two six forty four sixty seven sixty seven.
1: Matt, um, one of your texters chimed in, asked uh, whether managers are represented by the Players Association. They are not. They're represented by nobody. So coaches and managers in Major League Baseball tried to form a union back in the 90s, and it was quashed. Uh, you know, it was done. Um,
0: Makes them an awfully easy target for ownership, it, it, doesn't it?
1: It does. And, you know, again, Leland's point about how college coaches make three, $4 million, uh NFL coordinators make two or three million. You know, NFL coaches, I think Gruden's making ten million dollars, okay? Ten million. And he might have taken a little bit of a pay cut from ESPN, who was paying him ten million dollars a year. So when you talk about the top guys in the game and the incentive for wanting to be a manager, uh you know, the whole whole thing is skewed now as far as I'm concerned I agree with Leland 100 um, percent do you want a puppet as a manager a guy that uh, doesn't really feel good about himself out there that he has the proper control over those players that he is uh, and when I say control I mean the communication skills and being able to sell the fact that you are the man on a daily basis when things go bad that 's when you worry about it when things are going good you don 't worry about who you 're losing in their clubhouse. but do you have the ability to command and control things when things are going bad uh, do you Do you have that respect from people knowing if you 're a middle manager making less or the same as an entry level Player in Major League Baseball. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's be- a joke. Yeah. I mean, the players are making six hundred thousand as as rookies.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting in terms of the coaches. Like in in the NFL, the head coach really is in charge of uh, a lot in terms of defining the culture and the entire roster and everything like that. Where is the power? In the NFL, in MLB, the power is in the front office. That's one thing. Now in college, there really there's the athletic director, but yeah. I could see some of those big time programs. Your head coach, who's there and is an institution, is in charge of setting up that entire infrastructure. But, but, they have more responsibility in some but, ways. But,
1: but as a buffer, if you're a general manager or president of a baseball organization. Do you want some guy that's just going to listen to everything you say and kind of be a little bit weak need, Or do you want a Joe Madden who's accomplished, who uh, controls what goes on there, controls the message, uh, sits down and certainly listens to you in the metrics department at the beginning of the series, at the beginning of the day, before a game? But don't you want a Bigfoot there, a guy that – uh, he Has all the respect in the world. A guy like Socha, a guy like Baker, when he was on top of his game. Not
0: necessarily the young guy. Look at AJ Hinch in in in, in well, Houston. He, it worked like it's charm. Oh, Still a charm. He's
1: a, he's not a, a he's not a milk toast. He's not a guy that they walk over there. No, I mean, but
0: but he's but he's younger. When you say a bigfoot, I think you're talking about talking established about guys.
1: No, I'm not talking about age. I'm, I'm I mean, they have to have a gravitas. They have to have a, a power. Yeah, to I them. mean, I, I I can see you know a guy. Um, you know, a young guy coming in and having that. There's no question. I my question is, what kind of control do they have? Uh, w- whether or not uh, an eight hundred thousand, nine hundred thousand dollar contract is message enough to those players that he's going to be around and that he has to adhere to what that clubhouse is all about on a daily basis.
0: I think the best can overcome whatever those numbers happen to be. And it ends up being about what kind of communicator you are, what kind of powerful personality you are. And not every young guy who steps in or you know recently retired player is the same. Alex Cora has a really strong personality and a capability of of talking to people I don't know about put him Aaron. on the White
1: Sox, and then what, well, what's your answer?
0: Well, yeah, but I don't know about Aaron Boone is where I'm going. Yeah, I, okay. I don't know about like I, right. I haven't seen Aaron Boone has is, is, has had a couple of tests where I'm not sure if he's got the strength of personality to do what that job
1: demands. The robotic manager is what I'm concerned with. Uh, are we are we training managers to just adhere to what the front office says on a daily basis, to listen to the metrics department, or Should they continue to be able to disseminate that information to the point where they say, okay, I'm going to use this, but you know what? I'm not using it now. My gut tells me that I'm leaving Bodie in here to hit, even though it's a tough right-hander, because he's had some good success. And, you know, I just like the way he's looking right now. I like the way he's hitting the ball in batting practice. I'm going to use my gut.
0: Well, in the end we we've, we've been up there bruce in different places and we've talked to different guys in, in front offices they're up there in the suite they're watching and they go crazy when managers do certain Good things. For them. I, I remember when, let them, as they should. But what I'm saying is.
1: throw those spinning hits.
0: Still, it's still the managers in charge. And in the end, I had one front office guy once tell me, all managers suck. Ours just sucks a little bit less. I yeah. thought that was a great line. Because you want the guy who sucks a little bit less. But when it comes down to it, they do not have the power that they wish they did during the game.
1: I want a guy that controls that clubhouse, man. I want a guy. That's the that, most important. That, uh, that commands. Respect in there that understands each player. That is the one-minute manager. What is the one-minute manager, Matt? It's a guy that spends a little time with each player every day, whether it's thirty seconds or a minute. Know your guys. Uh, I mean, these are the great managers: the Tony Larusas, the Bobby Coxes, the the um, Jim Leland's, the people of this era, the Joe Torrey's. uh, Certainly, uh, you know, right up there. I mean, again. You want a guy that is going to listen to what the front office says or worry about, more importantly, worry about what they're going to think if something doesn't work out? I mean, that is that is certainly the most uh, anti-coaching theory you want to have is that a guy is sitting there worried about making a move because of the fact that uh, the president or the man-, man or the general manager is going to come down and ream him out if it doesn't work. You out. You
0: got to be strong as hell. You got to be there. You got to be but ready. You want to create that. Well, you,
1: you want that as a manager. You don't want a guy that's worried about his job. every no, day. No,
0: no. You want to hire somebody who's very strong, who's obviously a great communicator with the players, but somebody who's going to stand up to you. Any yeah. any front office guy worth his salt will tell you they right. want a manager who's going to stand up to them so they can think about the other every side of it.
1: Third year player. Every guy that goes to arbitration automatically makes more money than what will be the highest paid manager in baseball in the next 4 or 5 years if the trend continues to be 800 to 1.2 million dollars for a manager. You want your manager to earn a lot of money. You want him to be successful. You want him to grow with your organization. You want him to be the best. So, uh the whole thing is contrary to what I believe is right for the game.
0: The bottom of the hour was brought to you by the Chicago Wolves. The first place Chicago Wolves have four players who are in the top 10 in AHL scoring. Be there tonight as the Wolves host Rockford in an Illinois Lottery Cup game and meet your favorite characters on Superhero Night. Powered by Xfinity, visit ChicagoWolves.com. Phil is
3: in Lombard on 670 The Score. What's up, Phil? Uh, Good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Got it. Um, I just wanted to comment, man, it seems like the last couple weeks you seem to suggest that Joe Madden is like one bad streak away from being let go as uh, the manager of the Cubs, which I think is the farthest from the truth. I go um, honestly. I think you know what he's accomplished with the Cubs the last four years mm-hmm. has been one of historic uh, no question historic measures. And again, I'll ask you a couple of things: Who would you replace him with? Who,
1: I don't see anybody think, in baseball. I think that is a great. Simplistic question, man. No, no, but first of all, uh, Phil, right. both things
0: – hold both. on, Phil. Phil, couldn't both things be true that the last four years is a historic run and he's been absolutely terrific, but that he also is one real bad streak from being let go if they, to your point, have their guy that they want?
3: as I, the I don't think so. I, I think Theo's pretty smart, and he's just putting Joel Madden out there in front of the players, say it. Because, again, have you ever heard of a player who just, who did not like playing for Joe Maddon? Uh, I've, I've, sure.
1: I've talked to a few, but they were way off the record, and they were more players who were upset because they weren't getting playing time like any team that you would find from rookie ball all the way to the major leagues. So, uh, to, to your point, no, not very much at all.
3: I, I think this is just a motivational tactic by Theo showing the players, hey, I'm gonna throw Joe out there too, but in the end, I don't think I don't think he's in any danger of, of getting an extension. Well, I'll
1: tell you one guy that's and thank you for your call. Very very uh, interesting insight. I'll tell you one guy that's not worried about it. It's Joe Madden. Because he's not worried about his job. Not worried about it. No, and for all the reasons we talked about, managers mm-hmm. being secure, who they are, comfortable in their own skin, and more importantly, back to my old point. He has FU money now.
0: Well, that's the thing. He's got FU money and he's got an FU World Series championship. Yeah, I mean,
1: he he, he is, you know, uh, the most successful manager continuously in Cub history, uh, this side of Frank Chance going back to 1904 through 1910. Okay, I mean, that that is uh, a pretty big comment to make considering that the Cubs were not always the lovable losers, but in the first. Uh, 45 years of the century, mm-hmm. were the best National League team as far as uh, winning percentage and going to the World Series. So m- my point is that Theo is, as the caller points out, smart enough to know that Joe can handle a one-year contract. But, you know, the idea that Joe being gone, uh, one bad streak... You know, I, I don't I don't think it's going to be one bad streak. I, I will. You asked
0: me, you, you said, what's the record on
1: June 1st? Right. I, I want to know because, uh, you know, he is vulnerable to that at that point. All I'm saying is, I don't think he's going to get fired during the season.
0: If they have, you don't think he's going to get fired during the season? No. Okay. Um, if they have the next manager in mind and they know he's
1: a yes. Well, why, wouldn't they, they ask, why wouldn't they put him there now?
0: Um, so it's a fair question. Yeah. It's a fair question. Yeah. Well, maybe he's enjoying the job that he has or the jobs that he has. Okay. And maybe he wants one more year. Maybe he's told them, I, you know, give right. me one more year, but, it, but if it, things go real far but it, south,
1: be, but Matt, it would be contrary to what you want. I mean, you know, you have to pay Joe Madden $6 million, right? So if you think you're going to be better by paying 6 million to him and him not managing the team, you make that move. Now, you know, you go, Hey, we're, we're moving on. David Ross is our new manager. Uh-huh. You know, he's uh, more in line with what we're doing with our coaching staff, with what we want to do from the front office, and we thank Joe for his contributions. Um, Bruce, all the
0: pressure is there on on Joe and on the I, coaches I to do their it. job. I don't think
1: he'll take it. I don't think he'll take the pressure.
0: Well, no, I'm just saying that yeah. if things if things go south, there's nowhere else to point.
1: No, and and, and do we know that Joe Madden wants to return to the Cubs after 2019?
0: I I would doubt it. Actually, I, he, I, I mean, I mean,
1: that, I mean, he did say at the winter meetings that he did he would like to continue. But um, Joe is one of the smartest guys I know. It's street savvy guy. Um, he's not going to say anything that's uh, off kilter or make it make a situation like this difficult. He's uh, he's managed on one-year contracts before and uh, this is not for him, it's not a bad situation. In his mind, it's a new challenge to him at age 64. This is
0: 670 The Score. It's inside the clubhouse. He's Bruce Levine. I'm Matt Spiegel. More of your phone calls continuing as we head towards the top of the hour and Steve Rosenblum on The Score. This hour is brought to you by Grandview Homes. Grandview Grandview will buy your home today. Go to GrandviewHomes.com.
1: That's not, are they related to Lawrence Homes?
0: Uh, No, Grandview Homes. No, Grandview Homes. What's up, Holmes? Thank you for clarifying bruce uh lawrence has been down in miami for a bit of a working vacation that's nice i know uh, but this coming week after we get through january 1st i think uh the a team will all be back um on on the air as uh, we get ready for a bears playoff game but we don't care about that because this is inside the club we care
1: about it because we're chicagoans and it's a great great story and it's a great vibe for the city but you're you're right we are baseball and Let's get to the phone lines and uh, clean this up before you and Rosie take over at 11. Joe
0: is on the far northwest side, and he's on 670 the score. What do you say, Joe?
3: Hey, happy new year to Bruce, Matt, and Zach over there, and everybody at the score. But, you know, right now I think this Bryce Harper thing's a little bit out of hand, only because it's a great PR move for Theo, because of the convention coming up, Cubs convention next month. But just like Otani a year ago, the Cubs didn't get him. The Angels got him to me. He's been a bust. But uh, a lot of these things— no, Oh, he's not been a
0: bust. Ohtani. Otani? So-
3: well, to me, has. you can't have a guy pitch one game and all of a sudden he wants to play right field the next day. But, you know, our, as of late, we spent $350 million on free agents between Hayward, Darvish, and Chatwood. really hasn't been working out. But I think some of the keys to the Cubs' successes – is that You know, we've got to get Bryant, Darvish, Contreras, and Quintana back on, back on track again. But right now, we've got a major instability with these revolving doors, I call the coaches, our pitching coach, hitting coach, bench coach, as well as a few other things. But we need to get these guys on the same page. But some of the keys next year are some of Madden's side circus shows. That's what I call them. I mean, putting Rizzo on the pitcher's mound, putting Rizzo at third base, we need to start sweeping some of these series. Instead of two out of three, which ain't good enough, Milwaukee beat us by one game, we need to start sweeping some some of these men maybe do well by the trade deadline. But right now, instead of these, uh, I think we should be signing players at a fraction of what they're worth if we can by the trade deadline. Instead of these long-term contracts that turn out to be a bunch of fractions. All right, Joe, uh, one
1: question for you. Uh, yes or no answer. Would you take 95 wins again? Say that again, Bruce. One question. Would you take 95 wins again in 2019.
3: 95 wins is absolutely wonderful. He's done a great job for what we had, even though with all the injuries we had, uh-huh. and a sure. slow start by Darvish, and I agree with that, but... You know what? Milwaukee Brewers still knocked us up by one game, but I think some of the key here is stability and consistency. Right? Thank
0: you, Joe. We appreciate the call. He's looking for stability yeah, with you, the coaching staff. Off, I, I? I
3: did.
1: I
0: did. He, made, he had he had five thousand thoughts been, in a, uh, in you have a, a two thousand trigger bag.
1: I'm glad this isn't the old west. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Shohei Ohtani, by the way, in uh, three hundred and forty one plate appearances, uh, or sorry, uh, three hundred sixty seven plate appearances had a uh, an, an OPS of, of 925 and had uh, 22 homers and, and 61 ribs. And as a pitcher, by the way, with those 10 starts, 51 innings pitched, 11 Ks per nine. And if you watched, he was often dominant as, as a pitcher. I don't know that it'll, uh, it'll work for him to do both long term, but he's going to be a DH while he rehabs.
1: He, he's a very talented player in, in same many ways in one.
0: Far from a bust. Carl and Winnetka, you're on the score. Hello, Carl.
4: Yes, uh, Happy New Year, gentlemen. You too, um, too, I have a question for you, Bruce. Um, the White Sox projected uh um, how much are they going to spend this year on players so far their payroll? And then I have a part two question for you.
1: Okay. Well, they'll, they'll they'll spend as much as they feel it's necessary. They'll they'll spend anywhere between 80 and 130 million, 140 million if they sign a superstar. What's your other question?
4: But okay, what is their payroll right now? That's part one and part two is you know what, knowing Jerry Reinstorf, you know what, he's he been a great owner in, in this town, and he, he hasn't really been appreciated. And I'm sure he's burning up deep in his heart that the White Sox are down, but he understands that they're going through this rebuilding uh, process, and he believes in it. Um, do you think the White Sox still legitimately have a shot to sign one of these two big free agents? And you know what, knowing Jerry, if he could pull them both on his team, you think he would do it?
1: Uh, I don't think uh, it's going to fit for two. I think that Machado is the guy that fits more for them only because they need infield help, okay? You cannot name an infielder. You know, is going to be playing his last year with the White Sox unless they sign an extension. You can't name an infielder now who's at their position from 2018 that'll be at that position uh, next year or the year after.
0: Tim Anderson, you don't think will be there? Probably
1: not. No, I think, signed
0: to a very manageable th- oh, deal. Got a lot better. Oh, I think
1: he's, he's a wonderful, uh, physical player. And I think he's an outfielder. I think he could be a really good outfielder. Uh, but, um, I just, I think that you could do better at short. So 2020 and, and when they're going lot. for it, he improved a lot, but I, I'm talking about the strength of every team, man, every championship team I've ever known is up the middle catcher, shortstop, second center field. What do they do? They hit for sure. They're consistent for sure, but they, they make all the plays and more.
0: And to answer the caller's question, last year the White Sox had the second lowest payroll in baseball. 82 million. Uh, and uh, with the, uh, the Tampa Rays as, as the only one. And right now they only have, I think, 35 million allotted right. on the payroll for 2019 at this point.
1: I mean, you know, there, there's some arbitration numbers that are going to inflate it. Right, right, They're right. probably right at about 70, 70 to 75 committed. But. You know, they they go up as much as they want and still be happy about it if they sign a superstar.
0: This is John and Rolling Meadows on the score. What's up, John?
4: Hey, guys. First of all, before I get to this Madden situation, I think that Anderson will be your new center fielder. I think one way or the other, he'll be in the outfield this year, which will take a lot of the pressure off of him. Maybe we'll see him start hitting like he can in the leadoff spot stealing bases and for once in his life actually having fun playing the game. He won't have to think so much. Um as far as Madden goes, you know what? I as far as as far as I'm concerned, he's probably done at the end of this year with the Cubs. So, I mean, he's going to go into this year, he's going to do what they want him to do just to smooth things over, but and he'll be more active like he said he would be. But you know what? He's not going to get all uptight. He's not going to, you know, he's not going to start thinking about things too much. He's going to do what he does. Yep. And at the end of the year, you know, you might see him be an advisor somewhere instead of on the field. You don't know. Well, I think he, he wants won't to, be
1: back here. I think he wants to manage again. But a you know, good insight from you. Appreciate your thoughts. Happy New Year to you. Let's uh, clean him up.
0: This is Matt in Naperville on the score. What do you say, Matt?
3: Good morning,
4: gentlemen. Great talk as always. Um, Bruce, I, I had a thought. I was talking with some of my uh, uh, Cub friends over the holiday, and, uh, you know, it seems like there really is some interest on the Cubs end uh, about really trying to see about potential for picking up Harper. And uh, my question to you was, you know, is, do you think it, it makes sense or even a possibility of the Cubs doing a player salary dump, uh, potentially even to the White Sox, something along the lines of, Jason Hayward, uh, Tyler Chatward, and maybe uh, either Ian Happ or Al Mora, uh, then throw in some cash. You know, these are positions that the Sox, you know, really could utilize. And then, you know, the Cubs then, you know, with the money they save, go out and pick up Harper, kind of like the
1: Dodgers did the salary dump to the Reds. I'm sure, uh, and thanks for your call. Happy New Year. Matt, I'm sure that they've been – creative about looking at some of their bad contracts and trying to figure out if they can move Chatwood, certainly if they can move Hayward. I know that for a fact. Uh, they've looked at that for a while. And again, Hayward's not a bad player. He's a he's a good player, more of a platoon player uh, from his numbers. He's an excellent defender. He's an excellent teammate. He's a guy you want on your team. Production-wise, mm-hmm. you have to do more, and uh, with their with their outfield setup, as we talked about earlier in the show, you have to have more production from your outfield. So I'm sure they're be- being very creative about trying to move some of these contracts.
0: We spent the first uh, couple minutes of the show talking about the different ways you could do that with Jason Hayward. And in terms of Chatwood, there were rumors of Chatwood to Toronto for Russell Martin's contract. I mean, you know, the, these kind of deals where you trade one right. bad contract for and, another. And, and
1: there's there's credence for all of them. Sure.
0: I remember uh, remember Carlos Silva for Milton Bradley. Sure. And and yeah. and that, that worked for a little well, while. I mean, and Carlos Silva looked decent for a few moments. Right
1: now because of the way <laughs> that owners adhere to the cap, to the soft cap that's now a hard cap. Yeah. Only two teams going over last year, Matt. Um, It's more like the NBA where you have to make peripheral trades just to keep moving on. Matt, we have people to thank. Jim Leland,
0: thank you so much. As our only guest in the show, that was fun. Zach Withers did a great job. Jack Savio, before that, helped us a little bit in getting ready.
1: And uh, people can follow me on Twitter at MLB Bruce Levine. I write on the Cubs and Sox almost four or five times a week on our website, 670 The Score. I look forward to seeing you again next week in a new year. Yes, sir.
0: Happy New Year to you, Bruce. And uh, coming up in a moment, it's Steve Rosenblum and me, Matt Spiegel, for the next few hours here on 670 The Score.